Welcome to Meet the New Boss, a riveting podcast series exploring how business leaders make their way in the world and how music has influenced who they have become. Here are your hosts, Vince Catanzaro and Jeff Neva. Okay, everybody, welcome to Meet the New Boss, this week's episode. Hello, I'm Jeff Niebuhr, your co-host. With me always is... Vince Catanzaro. Vince Catanzaro. How are you doing this week, Vince? I'm doing great. How about yourself, Jeff? I'm fantastic. It is, uh, spring is kind of upon us, and we've talked about it before, but every week it gets more... It, it rained pollen last night. There was pollen caking up all over the yard. I think people from not Atlanta have a hard time understanding how pollen citric this season is. It's like uh, it's like snow season up north. You you know the uh, superhero Shazam. Yes. Right? Well, yes. I have a I have a red car, and right now it looks like a Shazam car because it's red nice. and yellow. Red and yellow. <laughs> red and yellow. <laughs> they call it back east. They don't say up north. They say back east, right? Isn't that what your uh, your tribe would say? Back east. Back east. I'm back in the back old east. country. Back in the old country. I don't, I don't, I don't think it means that. <laughs> well, uh, let's see. We're going to talk tonight, uh, today, about one of my favorite business books. We haven't really done, done uh, we've talked a little bit about research. We've talked a lot about personal exposure. But today we want to talk about a book that both Vince and I love. And it's called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. It's by Patrick Lynchonian. Hmm, not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. But it's published forever ago, 2002. I think I read this pretty much when it came out. Um, it's a very interesting book in that it's written like a novel. It's like you're dropped into this organization that just hired a new... Um, kind of a consultant type person and she's checking out the executive level team and essentially giving advice to the CEO and over the course of the story these five dysfunctions come out and and the main character kind of describes them but what's uh, my little personal story is it's set in Half Moon Bay California have you ever been there I have not so it's a great little city. It's maybe an hour, hour and 20 minutes south of San Francisco. I used to go out to San Francisco with Oracle a bunch. And every once in a while, we would go down to Half Moon Bay. There's a fabulous Ritz-Carlton right on the ocean and play golf there. And it's maybe my favorite golf, golf course. Um, it's a Lynx course, which means you can tee off on the first tee and hit a terribly awful shot and it might end up on the fourth fairway and you still got a shot to kind of bring that thing back home so very few lost balls um but i love that course but they they go to a little mexican restaurant in the book to have kind of one a conference and we were able to find what we think is that actual mexican restaurant and we went there and ate a couple times a couple years in a row because i like this book so much so it's like a little pilgrimage built in to the Mexican restaurant in Half Moon Bay. You are a pilgrimage guy. I've come. To I you. love it. I love yeah, it. You, you did a pilgrimage with your girlfriend through the South. Uh, That's right. Singing songs. You've done pilgrimages through Athens and 
And now we have the kids. And they've got a pilgrimage out in uh, south of the Bay Area. That's awesome. All right, so back to our book, Five Dysfunctions of a Team. So I, I have um, the five in order here um, on my little notes we want to go through. The first one is absence of trust. And what I like about this book is immediately you can um, identify in your work area how prevalent a given uh, dysfunction is or isn't. And so the absence of trust, uh, the side comment is it's, the un it's unwilling to be vulnerable within a group. And so I think uh, trust takes a little bit of time to build up. And so when new teams are formed, there's often a bit of absence of trust. Or if you're the new leader, there is an absence of trust. And I think one, the currency of trust is alluded to here is to be vulnerable. And so my experience is um, uh, it's a two-edged sword. When you're vulnerable, what can happen? Well, people can trust you, but they can also cut you at your knees, right? And so, so you find out real quick what type of group are you in. Uh, so what, what thoughts do you have on this subtopic here, Vince? Or can you think of a time in your career where this was maybe a problem? And then maybe another time when it was uh, not a problem. Yeah, well, you know, this is an interesting subject because I actually went through a training program. So one of the consulting companies um, have a program called the Speed of Trust. And it was all about how, how much faster people work and more productive people work when there is trust. And it was about building trust if you've identified that trust is an issue. So I went to work for this organization where like, this is like I stepped into this, so they must have figured out trust was an issue. And it was a, it was a really cool program. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, there was times when, I, you know, there was this guy I worked with, Lenny, who completely, untruthfully, sold me out to our, our group president. And it wasn't even mm. accurate. And, you know, the, you know, I had shared that conversation with some of the other folks in the team. And so that became, uh, you know, a code of DTL, which was uh, don't trust Lenny. Um, mm. So, you know, that was a, a case of, you know, certainly trust was broken and it affected our work relationship. But, you know, yeah. I think that, uh, you know, trust starts with transparency. Right. And, you know, I. I tend to be, just like my previous story, I tend to be pretty transparent with people about who I am and what I've done and kind of where I come from. And, uh, and I think transparency is like really the first step in trust. And, and you know, some people will use that against you, but my, my, most of my experience has been that, uh, you know, with, with transparency and with building trust and with, you know, breaking bread, that you know, trust is built, and 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 you know, I I wouldn't want to be around a team that doesn't trust each other because you know, we're not a team then, right? You know, yeah, uh, this is a bunch of people. So some, yeah, I had an experience one time where it was an HR-led session, and it's just uh, kind of you know, it was a really cool technology. We all went to this room, and there was some computers that were uh, not on the normal business network, but kind of in their own little private domain. And it was a real-time facilitation. And as the facilitation was happening, you could be anonymously post comments and there was anonymous real-time surveys happening. And there was a room, maybe 15 people, and there was the managers in the room and we're trying to facilitate this 
this uh, conversation. And so we get to the first question and, and somebody sets a comment that was not even terrible. It was like, well, sometimes the manager, you know, it overreacts and is emotional in a negative way that tends to shut people down, you know, and I think that could be something we could all work on or whatever. And the manager stands up and says, who wrote that comment? No, who wrote it? This is over right now, unless I know who wrote, who, and that was it. Like we shut it down and they all walked out of the room. was like, oh man, I'm glad I don't, I'm glad I don't work on that team. That sounds, sounds like that's not good at all. That's horrible. That's like the opposite. So uh, another, an opposite of that, which would be uh, better trust. I had a manager, I may have even told the story, but I had a manager, we did 360 reviews. I'm assuming you've done a bunch of 360 reviews. I think in general, they're pretty good. As an immature person, I would often try to read the feedback I get and try to figure out, well, who what, who said that? Who would have said that? Da, 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 da. And, you know, and if it's negative, try to hide it. Try to, you know, I don't want to, well, hey, how'd your 360 go, Jeff? Oh, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. You know, and so I had a boss who I think kind of wrote the script on how you ought to do it. Um, and so he got a 360 and there was some negative in there. But he sent it out, he sent the results out to all of his direct reports, to his boss, all of his peers, and all of his boss's peers. So I mean this is pretty I mean, this is all the people that control this guy's future, really. <laughs> and he said, Hey, here, I just wanted you guys to see this 360 review. I asked these 12 people to do it. Here's the common themes I see. Here are the things I think I need to work on, and this is my plan and how I'm going to work on it. And I'm this. You guys are the constituents for me, and I hope you all can hold me accountable if I you ever see me going off offline of this plan. <laughs> I was like, man, that's, that's, that's pretty awesome. transparent, pretty vulnerable, and he he was uh, to be held. He was just a great manager. So fast forward a couple years later, there was a very um, hard decision that was coming. Uh, I think it was in, in general to push something through into production that wasn't maybe quite ready, but there was a lot of political pressure um, to make it happen. And it was Saturday night, supposed to go in Sunday morning. He wrote an email to like essentially that same group I just said, his boss, his boss's boss, his boss's peers, his directs. Hey, I don't think this should go in. I'm directing my team not to let it go in. If you all need that to happen, then I won't be here Monday. And I just wanted to let you know that I'm not on board with this change. And so if I'm not here Monday, all my directs will know why, because I decided not that this is not ready to go in. And so was he there on Monday? it was a pretty bold move. It did not go in. You know, president of the company gets involved and it was like real quick. This guy has so much trust built up in capacity that it wasn't like a political shakedown. It was just, who's gonna argue with the guy who was so vulnerable? I mean, he's, again, he's kind of putting his job on the line, really, for the better of the company. And it's really just hard to say, oh, you know, forget him, we should just put it in. So, it, you know, it took us a couple more weeks. Of course, it went in eventually, but, you know, that's, he was a great example of um, how do you build trust and it is through vulnerability. And then what does it look like when you wield that power? Because you get a little bit of power when people trust you. And he certainly wielded it uh, for the betterment of the company, I thought. 
Cool. That's cool. Anything else on trust you can think of? No, let's keep on going. All right, cool. Next one I got, fear of conflict. So seeking artificial harmony over constructive, passionate debate. Man, this is a really good one too. It just seems like this is so common. Does everybody agree? Yep. Maybe I should have saved my little story for this one because my manager did not fear conflict, right? And he wasn't a jerk about it, really. And he wasn't, you know, he didn't go seek con, you know, conflict, but he, um, he would not seek artificial harmony, that's for sure. Can you think of times where you've been on teams oh, that, that so did this? I, I'm so, uh, so unafraid of conflict. So I grew up in staffing at, um, you know, an old school staffing company, kind of Marine Corps of staffing. And, hmm. and it was, uh, I mean, it was full of confrontation. I mean, I'm sure most of it was illegal. I mean, I'm sure it was much what? kinder and gentler. Illegal? To the, it was illegal. like hazing. Oh yeah, I mean it was it was brutal. It was so confrontational that I didn't know how confrontational and direct I had become. And I don't know if I've ever shared the story with you. So I end up at Alltel working with you know at, at Alltel mm-hmm. Information Services, and I'm only there for a few weeks. And you know, and I'm a bull in the china. I, I don't even realize that I'm completely a bull in the china closet in that organization, that recruiting organization right. that we're about to transform. And I had asked the um, the uh, office manager person. I was like, "Hey, I need to get a uh, a long phone cord. Can you get me like a you know twenty foot phone cord?" And she's like, "What do you need a twenty foot phone cord? That way, when I'm on the phone, I can walk around and kind of see what's going pace. on, yeah. check it out." Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so I this is before wireless out there, kids. This is before cell phones, <laughs> before Bluetooth. <laughs> Yes. You could have a ham radio or a 20, 20 foot cord. Those are your only yeah. two options. Or cup and string. One of those two. So, so, this is in 1962. So, Vince was. So I, I, go, I go to lunch that day. I didn't know about this until like two months later. I go to lunch that day, and uh, the whole department goes into uh, my manager's office and is like, you've got to fire Vince. Right? Nice. The whole group turned against me. And to his credit, he didn't uh, he didn't fire me, and we ended up you know, rebuilding the whole organization. Over the twenty foot cord, they didn't like you asking for the twenty. Oh, foot that cord. that was that was the straw that broke the camel's That's back. That's a straw. Right. That yeah. was you know that was <laughs> that was because uh, I was just so direct and so you know focused on hey we're making improvements and we're going to get better and these are all bad habits and we're going to change yeah. all this stuff. And uh, I just didn't realize I hadn't been in corporate America yet. I had just only been in uh, an, a, an agency, in the, yeah, the, yeah, the military environment. So uh, I didn't know how uh, conflict uh, insensitive I was at the time. Yeah. Well, one thing that came to mind where this seeking artificial harmony is I've been in a group where I, in the past where um, the leader wanted, wants to do the right thing, but he's pretty intimidating person and and the people right below them, you know, there's a fear happening, right? They, they fear his, you know, his wrath, I guess. And I, I can sense the four or five of them, lie is probably too strong of a word, bending the truth and they all collude automatically, right? To try to pacify the leader 
And it was just this artificial harmony that was happening unspoken, but in real time. It's not like there was some conspiracy where they go, well, let's say this and then you say that and then we'll tell him this. It was just in real time, I could sense it. Sometimes we're on a phone call and I can sense it. They all have just worked together long enough. And it was very strange. It took me a long time to, um, to get used to it. And it did take a, a while for that to break. And, um, and I think, I don't know if these are in order of how to fix, but I think absence of trust definitely feeds into this artificial harmony. And so it was really trust that had in this particular group that had to be established before this kind of strange artificial harmony was happening in real time. All right, one more, and then maybe we'll take a little break. All right, well, hang on before. I want to hit something else on that. So I think that conflict is, uh, is a, a really good thing, especially when, it's when there is trust and when people are working hard, right? And I think that's when you'll hit some conflict, when people are really trying to do well and, and there's a disagreement at that point. But if there is trust, you can have very positive conflict. And conflict doesn't have to be, you know, that guy that stands up in a meeting is like, who wrote that comment? I want to know right now. Yeah, that's, right. That's negative. That's not conflict. really conflict. Yeah, that's not, yeah. yeah, that's, yeah. You know, but, you know, disagreement and and being able to call out disagreements and push to figure out, you know, it should be that way because that's how the better, the better results are going to come. Perfect. All right, next one. Lack of commitment. Feigning buy-in for group decisions creates ambiguity throughout the organization. So I have an example here. We had a very high-end consultant from one of the top, you know, the big, they were the big six or the big five, but you guys, you know, you knew who we were talking about. Yep. And this guy, I was kind of a peon, but for whatever reason, I owned the budget for my division. So I knew what these guys were getting paid. And this is a long time ago, in the 90s even. And like their bill rates, five sixty an hour, six twenty five an hour, three eighty an hour. I mean, they're working on the same projects I'm working on. <laughs> I'm just like, what's going on here? And so this one guy, and it's kind of the classic Teflon, they call him Teflon. Because he may he would make a commitment to like the smallest slice of what could be expected of him, almost as if to ensure that he never missed a commitment. So for instance, we would be in a meeting and we'll say, hey, I'll call him Bob. Hey Bob, can you make sure they have, um, you know, that they under, that this other team understands these requirements? And and you know he goes he'll say something like oh I'll, yeah I'll make sure they get them well what everybody heard was that bob was going to go to this other team and walk through the commit you know these are the new specs you all need to develop to these specs and then we're going to get back together at the end of the weekend or whatever and when you know we're in crisis mode da, da, da. so we get back together 24 hours later and it's like well how come they're still working on the old spec you know, Bob, you're supposed to, you know, you're supposed to, you said you were going to take care of it. Oh, no, no, I, I committed to make sure they had the new specs and I did, I sent them to them. I'm like, come on, man. <laughs> we didn't ask you to send an email. We asked you to make this happen. And you're making $500 an hour and you can't go own that piece of work. So I don't know. That's what came to mind a little bit. Feigning buy-in for, it's not exactly this, but it's like a, it's like a real soft, weird commitment. What do you, what do you, what comes to your mind when we talk about this? 
Yeah, so what comes to my mind is, you know, I, I was in a position where, you know, I hired some young people and, you know, let's call them, I don't know, they're not even millennials anymore. What's the new generation? Whatever the new generation is. Next. You know, generation next. Generation next. And, and they just didn't care about their job. Right, it was right. like weird. Like I did this, weren't committed to the overall cause, or couldn't get, or I couldn't. You know, maybe that's on me. I couldn't figure out how to get them committed. I mm-hmm. just didn't care. You know, like wasn't wasn't important. Yeah, I you know I I didn't you know it it totally baffled me. You know, and I, yeah. I let I let them go. Right, you know, but you know, and I don't know if that's the answer. Yeah, hire better. Right, really, it's better hiring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Process. I think sometimes I've maybe even been guilty of this. If there's a absence of trust, I mean, I keep coming back to that. Then that leads a little bit to a fear of conflict, and then I can see myself feigning buy-in because the other option is to stand up and say, "No, I don't agree." Right, and and I've been in that situation, and I've stood up and said that. And then, you know, what's the old saying? It's it's the tallest blade of grass that gets cut first. Exactly. <laughs> right? And I have been cut, right? I've been cut right there. Not fired necessarily, but, you know, people go after that, you know, the tallest blade of grass. So I think leaders, you know, as you and I are both leaders, we should make sure that the uh, first two are really in place. Because the result of not having the first two's kind of solved absence of trust and fear of conflict is this weird, you know, feigning group, you know, buy-in when it's not really there. Okay, cool. Let's take a commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, our top artists of the 50s. We're going to go back all the way back to when rock and roll started. Although, if you read your Wikipedia, you might could see some rock and roll songs even back in the 20s and 30s, if you know where you're looking. But most people are going to say the 50s. All right, well, we'll be right back. So, Vince, people are always coming up to me and they're saying, Jeff, how do you get a podcast? What's the magic? How do you even get started? And so what I always talk about is the product Anchor. You know, we started this thing and we went in Google, what's the easiest way to get a podcast? And like the top 50 results all said Anchor. So we went out and we learned a little bit more about it and we discovered some really awesome parts about it. The first thing is it's free. It's absolutely free. Well, I mean, it gets better than that, you know, cause doing the whole process of recording and editing and just the, the creation of the podcast, and the engineering, the app literally builds in how do you record it, how do you edit it, you know, you could record right on the, the platform and edit right on the platform and add music on the platform. So it ends up being uh, not only free, but it's how you build the thing. And then the other thing, the next thing really was how do we distribute it? How do we get it out to the, all, of the, all the folks? And so from Anchor, you can do it almost anywhere through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and a bunch more. And it'll handle all the distribution, publishing. It was great. Well, you know, let's talk brass tacks. We're talking greenbacks, moolah, money. Yeah, that's where <laughs> that's where it's at. So it literally is like a, like a banking app, right? You know, literally, like all these banking apps that are out there, it's really built into the, into the platform. So it walks you through how do you monetize your podcast. Yep. 
It's everything you need, really, to make a podcast in one place. Well, you know, I would tell all the listeners, go to anchor.fm. That's anchor.fm. It's uh, it's the best place to start podcasting. All right. And we're back. That was a great interlude. Okay, let's get to uh, to music. This is uh, Meet the New Boss. And we are trying to talk about how music has impacted our careers. And speaking for myself, rock and roll music has impacted who I am, what I do every day. I probably hear a little bit of rock and roll music, and I love it. So let's go back to the 50s. Vince, you're significantly older than I am. So you, I think you were uh, in your mid-20s in the 50s, is what I remember. Is that how you recall it? Uh, what, what if you just thought of one artist that came out of the fifties? Who would you, who would you say, man, this is my go-to? And you know, for the record, Kiss had not been invented yet as a band. We'll get there, but in the fifties, who would you say held that mantle as the greatest artist well, the, the, of the fifties? It's the King, right? It's Elvis Presley. Yeah, he's Elvis the, Presley. He he changed he changed things. I, I, I you know I. I think why no, I took a, a music appreciation course in college, and I think I remember it being like the transition from the blues to rock and roll, from like what BB King was doing, that that mm-hmm. became that became kind of rock and roll. But uh, but Elvis Presley became a a, a, a phenomenon, right? He uh, he was yeah. Change the world. What's your favorite Elvis song, or maybe that represents this era? Favorite Elvis song? Uh, it probably have to be like, um, oh wait, Bruce Wayne Shoes. Yeah, cool. All right. That's, that's, that's so my uh, my artist from the fifties, I'm gonna pick is Buddy Holly. Right there, same era, but man, he was like a guitar legend. He wrote so many songs. Of course, tragically died very young age. Um, in fact, he was. You know, we all have children, and we try to influence them, I think, if we have them. My daughter, who's now turning 23, her first CD she ever purchased was Greatest Hits, Buddy Holly. I don't even know how old she was, six or seven, something like that. But that's how much I'd already kind of, Buddy Holly's greatest ever, it's greatest ever. <laughs> it's, it's the day music died, American Pie. The day music died, that's right. So, yeah, I think those are two legitimate picks. What's interesting is we both picked people who um, did tragically die. You know, Buddy Holly's certainly very young, but Elvis was how old when he passed? He wasn't like he was 80, right? I mean, no, he was, I think he was 42 still, or something like that, yeah. Yeah, relatively young, still had a lot of... It would have been interesting to see how they um, their careers went over time. I think another one you got to throw out there is Chuck Berry. There's a great um, documentary that Keith Richards kind of put together about Chuck Berry, and he was an amazing guy. He wrote all these songs, and um, he traveled real simply. Like, he did not have an entourage. He would just show up, and in his writer, he would say, I need a, I need a three or four-piece rock and roll band that knows how to play Chuck Berry songs. And that was it. And so, and he'd, he'd take his guitar, he, uh, he'd put it in luggage, he'd check it, comes out, and he's like, uh, you know, it may, maybe last a year or two, and then I got a new one, but that's a tax write-off, it's fine. 
Because <laughs> I'm not carrying the guitar in the airplane. That's a pain. It'll be a thing. And so there's a great story where Bruce Springsteen was opening for um, for Chuck Berry pretty early on in Springsteen's career. And so he had heard this story where uh, they just paid the local band, like whoever's in charge of the contract would go find some local band that could play Chuck Berry songs and Chuck Berry would you know, run them through it. And the deal was if they were good, Chuck Berry would pay them. If they weren't any good, you didn't get paid. And so <laughs> Bruce Springsteen goes to the promoter and says, hey, we want, you know, we'll pay the band that you had hired just to get out of here. We want to be Chuck Berry's band. And he's like, Sure, and so they did. And Chuck Berry didn't even know. They didn't know, he's like, all right, here we go. And then they played fine. And, and so the interviewer asked Bruce Springsteen, goes, well, how did it go? Did he say anything? He goes, well, we got paid, so I guess I guess it went okay. <laughs> that's good. Fine. I got to see B.B. Uh, yeah. King live. Um, yeah, that's pretty good. So, you know, for people who are in Atlanta, there's that, you know, summer series at Chastain, yeah, that's uh, oh, yeah, you bring a fancy dinner in and it's you know 120 oh, yeah. degrees in that bowl, and the crowd is there, and sweat's dripping off of you, you got candles in front of you, and uh, yeah. I got to see the great BB King perform. It was really awesome, it was great. That's amazing. Yeah. What year was that, you think? Oh, so that was probably uh, 2000, I'm gonna say 2004 ish, yeah. maybe a little bit later, 2006, so something like that. All right, good, good. All right, back to our uh, back to our content. We're talking about the five dysfunctions of a team. It's a great book. Everybody should go get it, read it, implement it. We're on uh, number four, which is avoidance of accountability, ducking the responsibility to call peers superiors um, on counterproductive behavior, which sets low standards. This is a really good one to me as well. Avoidance accountability, it's hard sometimes if this gets into the water and it becomes a part of the culture. How do I, um, that everybody begins to duck responsibility. And I've had that experience a little bit. This is a weird team I had and it was, things were, were bad and going worse, right? And I was a new leader and there was a lot of, you know, concern about the state of the team, rightly so. And in fact, one of one of my kind of co-leaders and I were were leading, and we were the, the we were losing people at a pretty rapid rate. Um, the people that were remaining were not our, our greatest. Like the, you know, and I remember he and I having this conversation. I'm like, the only people left on our team are those people that can't find other jobs. <laughs> like, it's just terrible. And it took us two years to kind of work out of that. And some of it was you just had to kind of start, this is my opinion, start small, let's be accountable for very small decisions and let's, don't, let's lower the expectations so that we can build them up over time. And that team actually became, you know, one of the highest performing teams I ever had and really set my career for about nine or 10 years while I was at Altel. And they um, allowed me to do a lot of awesome things that I probably would have never been able to do, but they all did awesome things, right? And, and most of the folks, you know, like sometimes, you know, bad apple, ruining the bunch, whatever. Most of the folks came along with the program. Only one or two 
did we ever have to kind of work out like, you know, look, you're just not, you're not progressing. We lower these expectations. We brought in some new people. We're making things better. We're getting better every quarter, every month. We're measuring. It's really, it's really visible and transparent and it's objective. And I think people, that's how people respond to a challenge is if they can see that their efforts are being, you know, acknowledged and recognized and they can move forward, then, you know, then there's a bit more effort and then, and then it just gets better. So you can either be on a downward spiral or an upward spiral, but that's my sense of the accountability. It's hard to, it's hard to get back once you've lost it, I think. Well, I think you hit something that's important is the um, transparency of metrics. Right. And if you're measuring mm-hmm. and you're measuring and you're wanting, you're identifying by measuring areas to improve on and you're working towards those improvements. And if those metrics are transparent through the whole team, I think yeah. people start to start to move. And I think it's like, OK, well, I, you know, I've got to, you know, because it's on the report every day. You know, I've got to mm-hmm. get this thing moving in the right direction. Yep. Yep, and so we um, we we actually did is we had um, we had Unix machines were owned by Unix admins, and we had databases owned by DBAs and and other kind of elements, and we would score each of these entities according to a standard. And so, when we first rolled out the standard, and we said, okay, here's the new standard, and we would go measure each of the say systems, we had you know, hundreds and hundreds of machines and hundreds and hundreds of databases. And so, you know, the scores were pretty terrible. Some, some were zero, cause they didn't, they didn't even have like the agent on there that could get measured. So whatever, you got a zero for your database or your machine or whatever. And so we weren't really so much looking at, oh, well, Susie's got an average score for her 20 machines of a 67 and Johnny's got an average score of 42. So Susie's much better than Johnny. That's not really what we were doing. We were like, hey, how can we improve? What have you improved in the last quarter? You went from an average of a 40 to an average of a 67. That's pretty good. Well, Johnny went from an average of zero to 42. So that's, that's actually pretty good too, right? He's he dealt a bad hand <laughs> and now his hand's a little bit better. And someday we'll be at 60 and someday at 70. And, it was funny, then we got to 80, 90, and 95s and hundreds. Then we, we got the leads together and we made the standard even more stringent. So we kind of lowered everybody's score down to, but that was all in real time. Everybody could see that score um, and everybody uh, was able to see how they could improve it. It was, there was no magic. It was like, well, you just have to go, you know, do these things. You have to put these things in these directories and you have to be at these revisions of the software and whatever. How often did you did you measure? Yeah, that did, was did, like did, a daily event. The agent yeah. would have measured every day, calculate it. Okay, and then the numbers would just everyone got distributed the numbers, and that was just that. There was in the system. So if you went to go pull up an application, and you could see, oh, it's on these three servers. I it would, and they were colored. Well, two of these three servers are colored, you know, yellow because they got C's, <laughs> and then one of them is an A, and it's, so it's a green, right? So. Um, that's how we implemented standards and made everything a little bit more calm. All right, so last one. Inattention to results. I love the second comment. Focusing on personal success, status, and ego before team success. I bet you have this in spades coming from a recruiting background because um, I think a lot of the metrics are focused on 
individual, right, kind of yes. things. Yes. So have you ever seen that go awry where the, the focus is too much on the individual? Or do you think maybe recruiting is the type of business where you do, you know, sales is a, is a type of business where maybe it is an individual more so than a team. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, the only time I see that as, you know, where it draws some negative type uh, pull is, is the, is the, it's almost like in smaller environments, the difference between new business development and account management. And, hmm. you know, in, in, the, in the IT shops that I've seen and people I talk to, they're basically compensated the same. Right, and so, mm -hmm. uh, so there, you know, so someone, you know, back in the days when you were at Verizon, you know, I knew someone that had the Verizon account, and you know, she basically worked her her texts all day long, right, and because the Verizon account was just so busy, you know, she was killing it in spread and and really making uh, a lot of money, and then mm -hmm. you would have, um, you know, someone who maybe working just as hard, uh, maybe even harder, doing fantastic work, bringing in new logos, but building business slowly, and, mm -hmm. and their spread is not as great. And I think there's the balance of trying to say, hey, hey, one, how are we doing as a team? Secondly, how are we doing? It's like the guy that had the zero because he had a bunch of bad right. you know, yeah, machines. Inherited and, a bad and, system. Right, and, and, he, and he grew it to, to 40 and when someone inherited something that's 75 and they grew it to 77 right, that's and, right. Uh, exactly. and and 77 in a production revenue environments getting all the accolades even though that 40 person did uh, really good work and I see that as a, a point of contention and, and heartburn in almost every place I've worked that's on the agency side mm-hmm yep it's tough, and I think the answer is to, um, and I've seen corp the companies I've been with, I've seen this improve over time, where the goals are a little bit more team-based, where I think they used to be a little bit more individual-based. And so I think it's a fine line. Sometimes I was at a company where my bonus structure was tied in solely, solely to company performance. Right, and it was the same measure, measurable, objective, transparent, same goals for everybody that was in the bonus program, all the way to the C-suite folks. And what what I didn't love is a it, it, they had much more to do with achieving these goals, but they set the goals, and their compensation was largely derived much more so than mine <laughs> from achieving these goals. So there was like a five-year period where we all got paid out, you know, 150% of bonus. And I just, <laughs> was just felt like, well, of course, yes. If I was in charge of setting the goals and I could dictate the activities of the company such that we would meet those goals and my pay was associated to these goals, then yes, we would always meet them for the maximum of whatever. And so I benefited that. So I think it can go maybe too far to team goals. Um, I think I, I think it's a much more effective so solution to where you have some combination of you know hey what are you really doing with your domain and and you personally and then yes corporately how are we 
How are we moving the ball forward? I had a great CIO once tell me, you know, he's like, Jeff, I, sit, I see all these proposals all day long, because I was giving him a proposal, right, to spend money. He goes, I see them all, all day long, and, these, and you IT people, and he was a CIO, but he's really more of an ops kind of business person. He's like, you IT people, he gets so excited about the next chipset and the next disk you know, drives and the next cloud thing. And you're all, you come in here and you have these PowerPoints and he goes, I just want to, I ask them everybody and I'm going to ask you to do the same thing. How many more cell phones are we going to sell because of this? <laughs> right? It's like, I don't want to do technology just to do technology. I need to be able to tie it to the core business, which is, you know, if you can tell me you're going to, reduce call time to, you know, reduce the number of calls into the call center by 20% because of this new cool program you want, great, I'm all for that. But if you just tell me it's faster disk drives, I, I don't care. How, how many more cell phones are we gonna sell? So that's a, I think that's a good thing to kind of, you know, not every company's a cell phone, but what is the genesis of that company? What's the core um, thing it needs to produce or do or get better at? And how do these goals align into to that? Yeah, that reminds me of an. That reminds me of another book that we did, um, where we implemented the balanced scorecard when we were together. I don't know how active you were in that process, but I really loved probably it. very importantly yeah. active. Yeah, the uh, I loved that process of being <laughs> able to tie. I think we had like five, three-year goals that we had to basically tie all of our activity to to a metric to those goals. Mm -hmm. And uh, and however that worked, that clicked in my brain. Like my brain got that, and uh, right. I, I really liked it. That's like make, completely makes yep. sense. Yeah. Sure. Yep. All right. Let's move on to the cultural corner. This is what we get all the fan mail. Literally, dozens of people a week are listening to this podcast, and they all love the cultural corner, don't they? I I, I do. I think we should just call this segment Jeff Hates Email. Yeah, this is, well, this is interesting because th this week's subject is what is the cheapest way to communicate this information? And I think uh, my experience, and probably myself too, my experience is we often communicate either in the manner in which somebody communicated to us or we communicate in the manner that we prefer. And I'm going to challenge myself and you, Vince, this week. Maybe we'll have a report card next week. A little balanced scorecard of our own. I want us to all think about how can we identify a cheaper way to communicate just as effectively. And I think that that starts with thinking a little bit about what are expensive ways to communicate and what are cheap ways to communicate. And so my, my challenge would be don't necessarily say, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to communicate this in the cheapest way available. I'm going to say, what's the cheapest way to effectively communicate this information? Because certainly we could all um, jump right to the most expensive and we would be able to communicate. Um, but I want us to, to, to go down the line. So I just made some notes of what I think the cheapest is to what I think the most, ex most expensive and you can tell me that you think it's differently. I think the cheapest is some sort of instant message. Slack, Skype, Teams, you know, messages, Hangout. So some, it's just a, it's conversational. There's not a lot of, um, 
a long tail of communication. Typically, you don't CC a bunch of people, so it's just really direct to the point. I think that's probably the cheapest way to communicate. Email, I think is the second cheapest. Email, and I think, um, especially if it's very factual, hey, the results of the maintenance window were this, da 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 da, -da. I'm gonna just deliver this information. Um, I think the next thing, I guess I would say you can't really have a conversation in email. That's one advantage of instant message. Like if I email you and then you email me back and then I email you and then you email me back, it's like something is lost in that delay, especially if there's 20 other people copied on it. I think phone call is probably next. I hear a lot of people say, pick up the phone and call. I think that's perfect. Yes, if you've had an email go back and forth two or three times, probably time to pick up the phone and call. Conference call. I mean, when the days of COVID, man, we've had more Zoom calls than anything. And then I think the last thing is an in-person meeting. And so there are certain things you can do at each one of these levels of communication that you can't do in the others. And so again, my challenge is, what is the cheapest way to effectively communicate the information that you need to effectively communicate? What are your thoughts on that, Vince? You know, I. So you're more technical than I am. You know, it seems to me, you know, I don't know the cost of bandwidth, right? So I would, I'd rather communicate in the most personal way, right? Okay, that's a great, so, that's a great culture corner. You know, so... What do you mean you know, by that? So, you know, even like in the days of pandemic, right? So uh, I do, gosh, I must do 20 video calls a week, right? Where I'm talking to people via video. And then, well, you know, if that's not working, slip to uh, to a, a phone call. Now, in between that, I prefer text, right? Because text comes to my uh -huh. phone. I always have my phone. It's quick. It's right. easy to respond. But uh, you know, but I don't know, does it? You know, you would probably know. Does it cost more to do a video call than a phone call? Because uh, you know, you're doing the same thing. Yeah, well, when I was saying cost, I don't necessarily mean like the cost of the technology. I meant the cost of your time and your focus and your energy and your inability to do other things, right? Like if you're IMing, which I, I would put text in an instant message platform, it's just a different type. Um, you can, I can have 13, you know, instant message windows going. And while they're responding, I can have another conversation over here. And, you know, just like you could do with your text, you could have 20, 30 texts kind of conversations happening. You have hundreds of email type of back and forths without really getting lost, but you can't have 20 phone <laughs> phone calls <laughs> ongoing, right? That's yeah, ridiculous. That's, that's, so that's what I mean by all of a sudden it gets super expensive to, it's a, it's a, for things that are very important and that have a lot of back and forth, then a phone call is the cheapest way because it's the only way. You can't really have a great back and forth in emails we talked about, in an instant message, you do lose a lot of you know nonverbal cues and stuff like that. So I'm not saying, oh, you should always just instant message, although in my real life, I often instant message as a first, as a first <laughs> choice, and that could be texted. But yeah, then when you like, okay, let's get to an in-person meeting, that's, you know, the medium itself is expensive, but then the dedication of people to that meeting is even heightened. I think with video, it's even heightened more just a conference calls a little less because, you know, people, oh, sorry, I was multitasking. 
But what they really mean is I wasn't paying attention to you <laughs> because <laughs> I didn't think it was all that important for me to pay attention to you. And it probably wasn't. That's what I don't love about you know conference calls or in-person meetings is you go to an hour-long meeting, maybe five minutes, 20 minutes was important to you or is important for you to know. You know, in, a, in another area of my life, not work-related, I'm involved with this organization and they love to have meetings. They, they, they will say mandatory. We're gonna have a mandatory meeting before you know, group tomorrow night. And so, I mean, I'm a dutiful soldier, I'll go. And all I can think of in the back of my mind, everything you're telling me right now, one, I'm not really remembering it because I don't remember verbally. I remember when I see it written. But so A, it's not super effective to me, but B, you could have just sent this to me in, in an email. Right, And so that's kind of what I mean by what's the cheapest way to communicate something. All right, cool. Well, I think that's it for the Cultural Corner. Um, I will just review real quick the uh, five dysfunctions of a team. We're going to encourage you guys to go out and get them. Uh, get this book and try to implement it in your groups. You can always reach out to Vince and I for tips, strategies, or if you just want somebody to talk to on a lonely Saturday night, Vince often is doing nothing but standing by the uh, information hotline at info at meetthenewboss.live. Dot live. But so here they are, five dysfunctions of a team, absence of trust, fear of conflict, lack of commitment, avoidance of accountability, and inattention to results. All right, everybody have a great week. We'll talk with you next time. Thanks, thanks Jeff. You have been listening to Meet the New Bus with Vince Catanzaro and Jeff Niebuhr. Available on Apple Podcasts and other streaming platforms. Please like and subscribe. Meet the New Bus is sponsored by Rene Vincent Executive Placement LLC. Contact Jeff at jeff.niebuhr at iCloud.com or find him on LinkedIn at Jeff Niebuhr. Contact Vince at Vincent at ReneVincent.win or find him on LinkedIn at Vincent Catanzaro. Bumper music provided by The Who and Budafi. Additional engineering provided by Just-In-Time Recordings. All material 100% controlled by Vincent Catanzaro and Jeff Niebuhr. Unauthorized reproduction is prohibited by law. Meet the new bus.